welcome to Larry Reedy's America. Uh, today's guest is J.D. Stevens. He's a doctor, uh, orthopedic surgeon, and without further ado, welcome to the podcast, J.D. Uh, thanks for having me, Larry. Okay. Uh, where were you born, grade school, high school? Yeah, so I was born in Greensburg, Indiana, actually. Uh, I attended elementary school at Hope. Uh, Indiana near Columbus. Uh, went to high school, um, the start of high school at Hauser High School, and then transitioned to Batesville High School. And so I graduated from Batesville High School in 2009. 2009. Okay, where did you do your pre-med? So I attended Franklin College um, on the south side of Indianapolis for undergraduate studies, uh, and then ultimately did medical school in Indianapolis at Marion University. Okay. And... Um, so, where did you do your residency? Residency I did in Dayton, Ohio at the Kettering Health Network, and then I um, subspecialized in joint replacements, joint arthroplasty in Columbus, Ohio at Joint Implant Surgeons. Okay. So, when you were in grade school, high school, did you always want to be a doctor? No. Um, I wanted to be a lot of different things. <laughs> like? <laughs> uh, you know, I think... Uh, originally, you know, some type of sports athlete, uh, professional athlete, and then it transitioned to, I think I wanted to be a firefighter for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, you know, I went into um, college thinking that, well, maybe I would be chiropractics or dentistry or something medically related um, and kind of bounced around from a, a couple of different fields, but ultimately landed on uh, medicine. Yeah. Well, I wanted to be a play, pro baseball player, but that didn't work out. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, when, when you were finished with your residency, uh, were you married at the time, or did you get married after that? Or No, I, I got married in residency, in uh, residency. second year, so juggling a, lot, okay. <laughs> juggling a lot of different things at that point. Yeah, I would imagine. So... Uh, where, where did you first work after your residency? So after residency, uh, I worked in Columbus, Ohio, okay. um, at Joint Implant Surgeons. Okay. And how long did you stay there? So it's a, a, a fellowship kind of subspecializing um, program. So in residency, you do five years of general orthopedic surgery. So they train you to be a, a general orthopedic surgeon. Um, and that includes training in joint replacements, sports, spine, hand, shoulder, elbow, really? uh, pediatrics, foot and ankle, kind of a generalized uh, program. And then the fellowship or the subspecialty training, it's more succinct. It's more of a niche. So you get more of a directed subspecialty training in a specific subset of orthopedics. And so mine was joint replacements. Yeah. Is it true that the shoulder is the hardest thing to rehab. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I think rehab uh, in general means different things for different people. And it also depends on what injury you're kind of rehabbing from. Yeah. Um, you know, I will say that the shoulder is a tough one to rehab, especially after things like rotator cuff repairs or different things yeah. like that. Um, you know, things get stiff. And a lot of times with those types of injuries, you're kind of threading a needle or balancing or creating a delicate balance between protecting a repair 
uh, but also advancing somebody in therapy fast enough that they don't lose motion. And it's yeah. a delicate balance. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a friend of mine who he had total replacement in his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And he rehabbed and he wasn't quite right for about a year. And, uh, and he said, well, I can play golf again. I said, what's the difference? I couldn't play before. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when you talk about shoulder replacements, there's a couple of different kinds or principles. Uh, in, our, in our younger patient population, people who still have a robust rotator cuff and one that functions appropriately, they can have what's called an anatomic shoulder mm-hmm. replacement. Um, and people that are maybe a little older, don't have a functioning rotator cuff, they have what's called a reverse total shoulder. And essentially what a reverse is, is you flip the, the ball and socket. So the shoulder's a ball and socket joint. So in a reverse, the implant, you actually reverse the, the ball from the humeral side to the socket side, mm-hmm. which is on the glenoid. Um, and it relies more on a biomechanical advantage of moving the center of rotation farther down the arm. Okay. So do you specialize in just like hip and knees or do you do the whole broad spectrum? So my subspecialty training is in hips, knees, and shoulders. But uh, in practice here in, in Batesville, I do a lot of general as well. So I do a lot of sports, a lot of hand, oh, foot and ankle, um, tra- community trauma, those types of things yeah. as well. So when you complete it, Five years residency? Yeah, five years of residency and one year of fellowship. Okay. And is that when you decided to come to Batesville, or did you stay with the hospital afterwards? Well, you know, in deciding to come to Batesville, I've always loved the community. I loved growing up here. Um, And then a big part of the decision was I I had children. So Mm -hmm. I can't say that before. Um, having kids and uh, a different mindset that yeah. I, you know, may or may not have ended up back here in my hometown. But at, when you have children, your mindset changes. I've got a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a six-month-old. So we, uh, we, my wife and I, we made the decision that we wanted to be in a community where, you know, we felt that they would be safe, that they would be able to grow and be successful. Um, and that you know, really be able to flourish versus, you know, a Columbus, Ohio or a yeah. Dayton or someplace where you're more, you know, you're just a number or the schools have thousands of kids and those types of things. That's what we are. Our first six or eight years apart and yeah. <laughs> our seventh was came along four years after. Them. So we've got seven uh, from. 52 to 60 and then we got a 48 year old so just crazy (laughs) (laughs) you passed the basketball team working on the baseball team (laughs) roster (laughs) well when we when we moved to batesville we we gave the builder a year to build this house Mm -hmm. from cincinnati yeah and when we moved here uh the reason we even come across Batesville was a teacher, former teacher is dead now, but at the high school, Bob Kroll was a woodshop teacher, I believe, and he had safari campgrounds. Well, we started off with the kids a little with a, 
33 or some foot holiday rambler, and then we went to a motor home. And we started camping at Safari down here and really liked the town. And uh, so we thought this would be a great place to raise kids. I agree. Uh, we love it here. Um, you know, we're able to walk to the library, walk to the square. There's, you know, there's enough uh, variety in different eatery places. Um, you know, there's, there always seems to be something to do, even, even in a smaller community. Um, you know, we, f- we feel safe. We, we know our neighbors. Yeah. We have, you know, a, a nucleus of, of friends our age with kids, our kids' age yeah. that are able to hang out and do recreational activities and stuff. And, you know, the other day it was warmer here in the winter and I, my kids have a, one of the you know, battery powered Jeeps, two seater. And yeah. so it has a little remote control and I drove them on the sidewalks all the way up to the square and oh, we went wow. to Ison's pizzeria <laughs> pizza <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, you, you aren't able to do that in most places. No. It's, and you know, uh, we're, we're at the point and was my, my one grandson had a wedding over the Rhine this past year. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's just no way I won't spend any time in Cincinnati. Anyway. <laughs> That's where I got married as well. We got married at oh. Mother of God uh, and then had our reception at Rheingeist. Okay. Let's see. They got married. Uh, hey, Nance. What was the name of the church that Robbie and Monica got married in? St. Mary's. Okay. I think it was Hyde Park. And, mm-hmm. and uh, they were at Maytree. You know where that is? Yeah. 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 Worst, worst <laughs> lousy meal I've ever had in my life there. <laughs> <laughs> for what they had to pay for. It's just yeah, stupid. <laughs> uh, we got married in 2018, and so I suspect the prices of goods have gone way up <laughs> since then. Well, I'll tell you, they, I think the dinners were 150 a plate. Wow. And they hit a lot of people. She's, Monica's from New York, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, she did internships at, Shark Tank and Four 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 Roses, mm-hmm. uh, and she's got a terrific job with Kroger. And my grandson Robbie has a great job. And boy, they went all out on this wedding, and I <laughs> thought they're insane. But uh, yeah, yeah, I um, I don't know. Looking back, you know, we had a great time. It was a great experience. Um, but it's a lot of money for a four or five hour party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I believe it. We were around, the, we were in that ballpark. Yeah. I mean, and again, <laughs> it's, it's your Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I tell you, you know, they tell you to enjoy every moment of it or whatever, yeah. but it seemed like it just goes by so fast. Oh. I, I know. I mean, we, you know, well, we were in a total different situation when we got married. I lived in Cincinnati, got married at St. William Church, where we both went to school there. And the Friars Club had a reception hall. And uh, I happened to have a friend who was part of a nine piece band, and they played for next to nothing. And yeah. So, you know, it was total. 
a total different world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, and, you know, I look at prices today and it's just kind of crazy on everything. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's expensive. Yeah. So, and, and you know, I, um, I had some uh, Batesville High School seniors on, and I also had some Oldenburg Academy seniors on. One from Batesville and one from the Academy both got Lilly scholarships. Mm-hmm. And the ones thinking about going to Notre Dame, mm-hmm. that's 81 grand a year. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Eli Lilly, I, I, you know, I, I think they're an incredible company. I actually did an internship there oh, after really? the first year of my um, first year of medical school, um, and their kind of main operation there in Indianapolis, like a college campus. There's restaurants. It's just it's Is it's a right? wonderful place. Well, doing an internship with Lilly, what what were you actually doing? So it wasn't orthopedic related. It was actually related to insulin. Um, they had a, a novel insulin, um, you know, uh, compound that they were working on testing, and it was actually in phase three. So a lot of a lot of uh, drugs that come down the pipeline they die before phase three. Um, and so this was one that had actually made it to phase three, and they were in the later stages of those um, drug trials. Mm-hmm. But well. Do you, like, the diabetics that are today, mm-hmm. think most of it's weight-related? Uh, you know, I think weight probably has some type of uh, contribution, but, you know, I think there's obviously a genetic predisposition yeah. to, to diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, that more recent literature would uh, suggest, you know. I think in general, in the United States, we probably don't do ourselves any favors. Everything's just so easily accessible with, uh, food, drinks, different things like that. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, I'm a glorified carpenter, so (laughs) I'll I'll reserve the, uh, the talks about diabetes and stuff to some of my, um, you know, medicine, family medicine colleagues. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I, I, you know, it's just, uh, every time I go to Kroger and and it's just not older people or, Somebody's had a bunch of kids. There's a lot of obese people walking around, and and it's a shame. And I know a lot of it's genetics, but uh, I don't know if it's uh, the education, not knowing what part two could be from carrying that kind of weight, mm-hmm. or willpower. And you know, you got all these fast food joints that are just beckoning you to come in. Yeah, you know, I think it's a lot of it's multifactorial. If you don't have a, you know, good, healthy habits early on, um, it's it's hard to come back from that. Um, and, you know, that's, again, just an opinion. But yeah, everything being so readily accessible is great until it's not. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, once, uh, well, I, I guess the reason I said weight-related because uh, – I know one person who, I guess it was, wasn't on the insulin yet, but he had diabetes and dropped 25 pounds and it was over. Didn't he take anything? Changed his diet also. Yeah. Um, you know, some, uh, s- some patients or people with diabetes can be well controlled with uh, diet, um, 
different exercise, you know, exercise programs, those types of things. Some can't, it just kind of depends on the case. Yeah. So, okay. Back to your specialties and the past, I think I had my hip replaced maybe 18, 20 years ago, something like that. And, mm-hmm. and when I had my hip replaced, uh, the I had uh, Patrick Kirk in Cincinnati, and I had to wait four and a half months to get in. And mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of like a machine. It's at Christ, and they had. Um, I think my operation was at eight o'clock. He did, he does, he did nine operations two days a week, and uh, I I had a really quick recovery because uh, he told me I probably wouldn't drive for six weeks and I, I went in on a Friday and I was driving on Tuesday and yeah. I never had any problems at none, you know, none at all yeah total hip uh, replacement surgery is a uh, very predictable very high patient satisfaction procedure um, you know it's probably one of the highest patient satisfaction procedures we do in orthopedics really yeah um, you know, we've come a long way from 20 years ago in our materials, our technologies, our approaches. Um, I think the biggest thing, to your point about driving, um, when when we talk about driving, basically you have to be off narcotic pain medication. My nerve was on it. Right. And a lot of times we can avoid it with, avoid it altogether with, uh, you know, utilizing a couple different medications to treat different um, pain pathways. So that you're not having to give a bunch of narcotics, you're not mm-hmm. contributing to the opioid epidemic in the United States, um, and you're able to get people on a faster uh, road to recovery. Also, you have to be able to brake uh, effectively. So most people are only concerned about the gas pedal going forward, but really, it's being able to brake without um, being tentative or having pain. And some literature would suggest that the effects of anesthesia in general take about two weeks to kind of get out of your system. Sometimes you'll have some brain fog or different things like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I tell patients you're going to be anywhere from two to six weeks um, not being able to drive. Just kind of depends on which leg, how quickly we're able to wean off of all narcotics, uh, those type of things. Well, I, I not only can take any narcotics, but... When uh, I I woke up in the recovery room, and I've I've had I had a neck surgery one time, and I kind of react to being under a little bit different. I wake up, and I'm really ready to you know I'm full energy. New man. <laughs> and anyway. I'm looking around this recovery room, and it's like a bunch of zombies there, just like that. And so anyway, the attending nurse came in and said, well, now you're going to be in and out of sleep all day today. I said, okay. So he says, it's just normal thing. I said, when does that start? He says, well, probably now. No, I don't think so. Never happened. So we went, <laughs> we went back to my room. I'm sitting there thinking, geez, um, I'm supposed to be sleeping. Well, I, I didn't go to sleep till 12 o'clock that night. 
Yeah. And I got up at six the next morning, which I usually do. And the only funny thing, I mean, Christ Hospital food's awful. It was at the time anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, that evening, they called the room. So what would you like for dinner? I said, just give me a hamburger. I figured they couldn't screw that up because I, their their lunch was awful. I think I could hardly eat it. And she said, "Well, I'll be about forty minutes." I said, "Well, while I'm waiting, will you send me up a McAllen?" <laughs> she says, "Okay." Hung up. About two minutes later, I get a phone call. She said, "Sir, we we don't serve alcohol." <laughs> <laughs> And I said, I'm just kidding. Get away. (laughs) But uh, so today, I guess they have um, have partial hip replacements also. Um, Yeah. So typically, um, when you when you talk about partials, so if you're going to have a total hip, uh, you know, the primary indication is arthritis, end stage arthritis, and a total hip replacement has about a 95% patient satisfaction rate. There's a thing called the uh, forgotten hip score, which is one of the ways that we calibrate and kind of look at how patients do after surgery at a year or two years, whatever. And so the amount of people that function well and ultimately just kind of forget that they had a hip done because they don't really have any issues is pretty high. Um, as opposed to like a total knee replacement, which doesn't have as high of a, a patient satisfaction score. You know, if, if a total hip is 95%, you know, you're looking at, you know, 85% uh, of patients with a total knee, even done to perfection on the surgeon side, even, you know, implant side, they don't, they don't feel as normal. Um, they, is that because of not doing exercise properly no no and nobody knows oh, okay. <laughs> and that's okay. the that's the uh the very expensive question um now when we talk about partials so in hips really there's not a there's there's what's called a hemi arthroplasty for a hip um and that's where that's mostly reserved for uh hip fractures where someone you know has a hip fracture usually they're older Usually they're not as active. They're um, they have they're less demand, and you basically remove the part that's broken, and then you replace it with a, a new femoral head and stem. Mm-hmm. As far as an elective procedure for arthritis, hey, I'm I'm func- you know my hip is hurting me. It's I'm having this groin pain in the front, just been bothering me, bothering me, bothering me. That's a total hip where you're going to replace both the ball and the socket. So the 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 cup on the pelvis side, and then also, you know, a stem and a femoral head on the on the femur side as well. Okay. Now, when we talk about knees, there's a total knee, and so there's three compartments in the knee: the inside, the outside, and underneath your kneecap, and they're all connected. And so, a total knee, you're replacing all of those compartments. In a partial knee, you're replacing one of those compartments, and there's inside uh, compartment replacements called um, you know, medial uni arthroplasties. There's outside compartment uh, replacements called lateral um, uni arthroplasties. And then there's patellofemoral replacements where you're just replacing underneath the kneecap and the trochlea. 
The more common one because of the wear pattern is the medial, the inside. inside. You know, 70, 80% of people present with inside knee arthritis. When we talk about partials, they perform very well. When you look at how patients do, they're closer to patient satisfactions of your total hips. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're somewhere in between the 85, 95, but they're closer to your total hip patients. And that's because they feel more normal. You get to keep your ACL and your PCL in a partial uh, knee replacement. Yeah. And so the, the proprioceptive nerve endings that are in those ligaments, you get to keep. And so it feels less robotic. It feels more like your normal knee. There's a faster recovery, better range of motion, smaller incision, faster surgery. The downside of a partial is most registry data where we look at all the ones done, you know, in the United States or a lot of registry data comes from Australia, actually. Um, You know, there's a higher chance of what's called revision, meaning they have to be done over. And usually the the reason for that is is one of two reasons. One, either component loosening or two, you develop arthritis in your other compartments that weren't replaced. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so at that point, then you have to have it converted to a total knee replacement. But the unis that are, you know, done well, um, people have great results. And, and really, a lot of times the satisfaction is higher than the total joint. Yeah. But, I, and again, at my age, yeah, I told you I'm not going to have knee replacement. <laughs> but if, if a person, Let's say he's in his 50s, mm-hmm. and he can take the partial replacement. But, you know, the arthritis could spread someplace else. And what I, I think if, if I was in my 50s and was going to do it, if I had my choice, I'd probably get the total knee instead of worrying about if I'm going to get arthritis someplace else or, you know, have to go back in. And that's a conversation that I routinely have with patients. You know, you have to meet a certain criteria to have a partial or a uni compartment knee replacement. Um, And one of them is you have to have your ACL, a functioning ACL. Mm -hmm. You have to have arthritis, um, you know, that's kind of localized to that one compartment. Now, you can have a little arthritis underneath your kneecap but uh, or in another compartment, but really it needs to be isolated. Your deformity has to be correctable. Um, So a lot of times we'll have stress views performed to make sure that the other compartments don't um, compress down. And then intraoperatively, if we are going to do a partial, we always look. So when we open up the knee, we look at all three compartments. And if you've got a lot of arthritis or more arthritis than was appreciated on your preoperative x-rays, we do the total knee right then and there. If you have arthritis in other joints, does that mean you possibly would be susceptible to having more arthritis in a knee, or does that mean no, nothing? No, nope, doesn't no, mean okay. anything there. Okay. Now, as far as your original question, if, if you're in your 50s, partial versus total, I think it just really depends on your expectations. Um, you know, there's a possibility that either a total or a partial uh, would have to be revised at some really? point. Um, although the partial is a higher percentage in registry data, but it's, it's, you know, it's possible that either one, uh, if you live long enough would have to be redone. Yeah. Um, you know, 
I think it just kind of depends. Some people are okay kind of rolling the dice and taking that chance. Some people say, you know what? I don't want to have to have anything converted ever. I just want one. I want, you know, I want the opportunity to have one surgery and be done with it. And I don't even want to have, you know, I don't want to have the, to worry about, um, you know, ever getting this converted if it would come to that. And that's fine. It's Mm -hmm. a, a personal preference. We just have a, a thorough discussion outlining the pros and cons of each. Um, and I, I kind of defer and let the patient make the, make the call as an orthopedic surgeon, you know, our job is to help educate patients, make sure they thoroughly understand all of their options, the pros and cons of each procedure and how they want to, you know, move forth is really up to them. It's still America. They're still captain of the ship. Well, you know, the funny thing is I still, I'm, I work out with Bowflex three days a week, Mm -hmm. but before I walk, work out, you know, I stretch and I still do the exercise from my hip. Mm-hmm. That I, and yeah. And that's great. You know, I have a lot of people that come into the office with terrible arthritis on their x-ray, but the, you know, ah, doc doesn't really bother me, you know? And so looking at their x-ray, Oh man, this looks super painful. But if they're, you know, managing their symptoms, well, yeah. it doesn't bother them you know, we really have a conversation of, well, do you want to subject yourself to surgery if it's not really bothering you yet? And some people do, some people don't, but again, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's a quality of life procedure. It's a quality of life call. It's not a cardiovascular surgeon's office where it's do or die. Um, and so when we, when we have these conversations, I tell my patients when they have more bad days than good out of the month, when these conservative things stop working, like injections, therapy, anti-inflammatories, those types of things, and when it affects their quality of life. Hey, hey, doc, I love playing pickleball. I love going bowling. I love playing with grandkids. You know, I, I like doing X, Y, and Z, and I'm not able to do it because my knee pain. That's when it's time to consider a surgical option. Okay. Now, what about shoulder? Uh, there's, again, partial, full shoulder uh, we, one of Nancy's retired nurse friends, she's had two, well, she's had a surgery, she had a, I think, hips and one shoulder, and she just had another one several months ago, mm-hmm. and she is just in misery from that one. She, the first one she didn't have a problem with, this one she did, but she I guess she was at the point she couldn't lift her arm. She couldn't hardly do anything with the one arm. Mm-hmm. And why why is that so difficult? Well, um, you know, without seeing or evaluating her, I'll, no, you'll have to take you'll have to general. take this with a grain why of salt. But um, you know, it's it's one of those things, and again, we don't know if she had an anatomic or a reverse total shoulder. When we talk about partials, there's in the shoulder, there's a, a hemi where you just do the one side, but it's it's really not. Um, there's only select indications for that. If you're if you have shoulder arthritis and you're going to have a shoulder replacement, it's typically going to be an anatomic or a reverse. And I would say in my hands and most people's hands, a large majority of people are getting a reverse total shoulder. And I'll tell you why. I think you know someone in their fifties. Their rotator cuff, if it's intact, is probably functioning well. When you get older than 60, 
up into your 70s. 80s. Right. You know, (laughs) even if your rotator cuff is intact, even if it's still attached, it's likely not functioning normally. As we age, we start to get some fatty infiltration into Mm -hmm. the cuff. We start to get, you know, it's the volume of the muscle becomes less robust. And so the biggest reason why anatomic shoulders get have to be redone, revised to a reverse, is because the rotator cuff fails. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think the mindset of a lot of people is even, or a lot of surgeons, is even when the rotator cuff is intact, once somebody's past a certain age, if they demonstrate weakness or different signs on their clinical exam, they're getting a reverse, okay? Um, both procedures can do very well. Uh, not everybody, um, but they have a, a high patient satisfaction uh, with that procedure. But to your point, you know, the rehab is tough. Row range of motion after a shoulder replacement can go very a, well. But some kind of machine to the. Yeah, uh, and a, a lot of um, you know therapy is very important uh, yeah. afterwards to to get your range of motion back. But it's a it's a balancing act. A lot of times you're um, balancing protecting a repair in an anatomic. You have to repair the subscapularis, which is a one of the rotator cuff muscles in the front of your shoulder. Okay. Um, and so you have to re- protect that repair before you can kind of go too far with therapy. Because uh, if that fails, the rate of failure of your construct is much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in reverses, you don't have to uh, repair that, although some people do. Um, just kind of a preference thing. Um, but in reverse, you may not have as much range of motion afterwards just because of the design of the implant. Mm-hmm. I, I think the the biggest range of motion loss that people have is internal rotation, kind of, you know, hygiene after you go to the bathroom type of deal Mm -hmm. but a lot of times people with shoulder arthritis aren't able to do that anyway with that arm and so after the surgery if they're not able to they don't really lose anything they're just kind of getting back what they had before but it's very predictable at alleviating pain and i think that's what most people are after once they get to the point where they want to have their shoulders operated on is pain pain it's more so than the knee or the hip I don't know that it's more so, you know, but I, I, we don't walk on our shoulders. Uh, we don't walk on our hands. And so uh, there's a lot of people that are able to manage shoulder issues for a lot longer um, because they don't have the stresses. When you talk about every pound of weight that you have, and I tell people this all the time in my office, um, you know, hey, doc, is my weight a factor? Every pound that I lose, every pound that you lose is times two on your hips, times four joint reactive forces on your knees, and times six on your ankles. So undoubtedly, um, you know, you don't have to lose a ton of weight before times four helps your knees a lot. Yeah, yeah, wow. So is there, like the replacements today, are they better than they were Say like when I had my hip done 15, 18 years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think undoubtedly so. Our technologies have improved. Our material manufacturing processes have, repro- or have improved. But we won't know for another 15 to 20 years how good the implants yeah. we're putting in today are. 
Um, yeah. We know the implants that were put in 20 years ago, the shelf life on those implants before the polyethylene starts wearing out, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, but we won't know how good the ones we are doing today uh, are at lasting until we get 20, 30 years in the future and look back at it. You yeah. know, now the polyethylene portion of most of these constructs are, um, you know, different manufacturing processes to get rid of uh, oxygen-free radicals. Vitamin E is used in some products to help reduce the wear rates. Um, and so our knowledge base from the manufacturing side of things has only improved over the last two decades mm -hmm. and will only continue to improve. Um, but right now, you know, there's no such thing as the perfect total joint, but that's what we're chasing. Yeah. Well, if, if, if guys are having hip surgery, do you have different replacements lined up or is it, I mean, sizes or, I mean, right there in the operating room or is today's technology so good that you can pinpoint the exact size you need? So before surgery, there's x-rays that are templated. And so before anyone goes to surgery, they are, um, you know, templated. We try to get an accurate size before we go into surgery so that we kind of have an idea already yeah. what that's going to be. There are certain companies that based on a CT scan or an MRI, are kind of like a, a joint in a box, basically, where, you know, this is what the size is going to be. Uh, otherwise, you know, in, in surgery, we have options uh, for any size, um, except maybe the most extremely large size or the extremely small size. But because of the preoperative templating, we know which patients are going to need them, so we have those available. Okay. And so when we're talking about sizes, um, you know, everything is available. There shouldn't be a lot of chaos or anything. Everything should be routine. You know, in, in Columbus, Ohio, we're doing 10 joints a day, four days a week. So yeah. 40, 40 a week. Um, and it's essentially like a factory. Yeah. Yeah. And so everything is on the shelf. So if it's not right in the OR, it's in the storage room next door. When we talk about total hip replacements as well, you know, another conversation that I always have uh, with my patients, there's a lot of different approaches to use how you get down to the hip to replace it. There's the an direct anterior approach. There's a lateral approach from the side. There's a posterior approach where it's also the incision is on the side, but you're kind of coming through your, yeah. your gluteus really? maximus muscle. Um, the direct anterior approach is undoubtedly become more popular in, in recent years, probably over the last decade. The advantage, all of them have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, and, and we talk about those, you know, the advantages of doing it from the front. Um, you don't have to cut through any muscles. You're, you kind of spread them apart. You get to more easily use intraoperative um, fluoroscopy or x-ray so that you know that your components are in a appropriate position before you leave the OR, which is, which is nice. Uh, there's less risk of instability or dislocation with the direct anterior approach. And the recovery, at least initially, seems to be a little faster. Yeah, that's what I hear. Now, the downside of, the, of going from the front is sometimes, especially on people that carry a little more weight in their bellies, 
the top part of the incision can get a little soupy, can break down a little bit. Uh, and the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve kind of spreads out like a tree mm -hmm. there. And so some people will have some numbness around the incision, but in most cases it comes back, it just can take some time. Additionally, from the front, there's uh, a newer kind of approach called the bikini incision, where instead of a, a longitudinal kind of up and down incision, it's from the side, like the bottom of where your bikini would be. Really? And the benefit of that is it stays out of the skin fold and so that area is just tough to keep dry. Incisions that are moist don't like to heal real well. And so for patients that are a little larger, it can be a very nice option. Some people request it in general. Uh, they like the way it falls on their bikini. I don't know. But it's the uh, kind of a newer, sexier approach. But after you get through the skin layer, the rest of the approach is the same as the direct anterior. Well, you know, when I, when I uh, hit my hip, woke up and was talking to the nurse. I said, how long was I in the operating room? He said, well, you were in there 33 minutes and Dr. Kirk was in there 27 minutes. I said, what? I said, oh, yeah. He says, he'll, he'll do nine today. <laughs> I'm thinking, I mean, that, like you said, it's like a factory. It's just, yeah. just one pop from one operating room to the next. And the, the way that's uh, established is, you know, the surgeon and a lot of times when it's set up that way to be able to do nine, 10 total joints in a day, you know, when you come into the room, the surgeon's not there. The staff right. is. Right. Anesthesia puts you to sleep. In today's realm, you're likely going to get a spinal anesthesia um, so that you don't feel the pain below, but then you're also able to um, go easier on the general anesthetic so they don't have to use as many um, medications. Really? Uh, in, in total knees, you know, you're getting uh, different blocks. Um, we use the uh, an adductor block and then also a block that goes kind of behind your knee. And all of those are an attempt to use less anesthesia so to help control your pain intraoperatively. But anyway, you come in with the staff, the staff positions you, they get you on the operating table or the HANA table or whatever bed is being used. You're positioned a lot of times at a lot of institutions, you're kind of draped already. So prepped where everything's sterile, the drapes go on. And then essentially at that point, then you're waiting for the surgeon to come in and do the case. Yeah. So everything's all ready to go. Yeah, so the true. minute the surgeon comes in, the knife is in the hand and the procedure <laughs> begins. <laughs> And so the procedure itself, you know, takes a relatively smaller amount of time. But when the grand scheme of things, the whole production from the time you get there, your, you know, the preoperative uh, IVs that they put in you and all of those things going into the operating room, getting positioned, anesthesias delivered, prepped and draped, uh, the actual procedure being performed by the surgeon. And then a lot of times a physician's assistant will actually close the, the wound because um, the surgeon will break and go to a different case to yeah. do, you know, and that's the efficiency portion of how these uh, operations are, are done in order to serve more people. There's a lot of people with arthritis uh, in the world and, you know, in order to, to serve those people, it has to be efficient like that. Yeah. Well, uh, is the hip, or what, what are all the operations, the hip, shoulder, and the knee, are they all 
time-wise about the same, or is the hip the quickest? No, and it, it, there's a lot of different factors that play a part into uh, efficiencies or mm-hmm. quickness. Um, you know, when you are looking at the complexity of the cases, they're all complex. At the end of the day, you're always working on a, a human being, and so yeah. everything's complex. And there's different deformities um, that are more complex than others. Every hip is not the same. Everybody's hip arthritis. Some are way more severe. You can have post-traumatic arthritis, post-infectious arthritis. Um, you can have hardware in place already that has to be removed, and then the total hip is done in the same setting. And so there's a lot of different factors that go into how quick or routine um, something is. But when you're operating as a surgeon, you're never, my dad always used to say in growing up, as our coach and stuff, be quick, but don't hurry. And a lot of those applications apply to surgery. You know, I want to be quick and efficient, but you'll never, uh, you'll never see me look flustered or in a hurry. You know, the, the efficiency comes from everybody, including the staff being on the same page. So the, the procedure being predictable, every point in the procedure, we do the same things with the same motions. Mm -hmm. You know, every instrument I use for every single case is the same at, at each yeah. point in the case. And so when I stick my hand up, the instrument should be there. Yep. And then that part of the procedure is done. And then the next instrument will be there. Um, even as far as the assistants that are holding the retractors, each retractor is placed in the same spot by myself every time and then held. They know when to loosen off uh, retraction to give the skin a break each time. And so everything is very routine and predictable. And that's how efficiency is, is, um, is achieved in the OR, especially with elective procedures that you're doing more commonly. I have a question. And this hap- happened to me uh, when I went in for a consultation to have my hip replaced. Uh, factor five line was never brought up. Okay. And I told Patrick Kirk, I said, by the way, uh, I have a daughter with Factor V Lyme. My wife was tested. She doesn't have it, so I have it. He says, you're going to get tested right away. Now, I'm thinking, you know, so, and, and the nurse came in to give me an aspirin. She didn't read her chart. And I said, you better read your chart. Because instead of the aspirin, I get 10 shots in my belly every day, which... Dan's just love doing that. <laughs> you know, but, but, and a really close friend of mine, uh, his wife died before he did. Uh, she always had this thing about afraid to get her knee replaced, but the pain was so bad she did. She went in, had the operation. Two days later, she died from blood clots. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, I said, was she tested for factor five Leiden? He said, no, I don't think, I don't even know what it is. So, and I know there's only 5% of the population that has it, and you have to be a Caucasian to have it. But I know another guy who died from blood clots after him in surgery. And is it because of the expense of the test or is it because there's such a low rate of factor five line in the population? 
I think it's because there's a low rate. And so based on the Academy's guidelines, the ortho, you know, the overlying orthopedic um, organization, it's not something that's routinely uh, tested. Uh, and when we look at medicine in general, whether it's in this particular case with Factor V Leiden or with anything really, you know, unless there's a, we, we always look at what the number needed to treat is. And so routinely testing or spending you know, money on tests that don't necessarily make a difference, uh, or at least it's so small of the time, make a difference, then they're not recommended. Now, I'm sorry to hear about, you know, that particular situation. Those situations are tragic, um, but they're few and far between. And again, my heart goes out to to anybody that's in in that circumstance. And so a lot of times, um, a lot of times it's already been diagnosed. When you talk when you talk about joint replacements, they're typically occurring in older people. And so usually, not always, but usually something like that has been diagnosed by that point. Now, there's people that get blood clots or patients that get blood clots after surgery for reasons that aren't related to yeah, factor five. Oh, I understand that. Um, but after after a um, total joint at least from a hip and knee standpoint, you're always put on blood clot um, prevention medications. Um, more recent literature would suggest that most people are okay with an aspirin morning and night. Um, but some people with risk factors, we will utilize um, more uh, robust anticoagulation. Well, if if someone came in for not just joint surgery, it could be any type of surgery and they knew about factor five one could they request a test and uh yeah yeah of course of okay. course and um if I mean, you have insurance a, pay for that um i would you know I, again there's so many different insurance companies yeah. and different plans yeah. uh but I, I would assume that that would be something that would be covered um you know it, it is uh obviously a big deal. And after it, it will go into different clinical decision-making, if somebody has factor five Leiden, obviously where it's going to be something where we may use a different type of anticoagulation than what we use for the person that's otherwise healthy without any clotting disorders. Mm-hmm. And so it just kind of depends. Okay. So anyway, let's get away from this talk. <laughs> uh, is your wife from the Greensburg area? Or? No, my wife's from Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Mm-hmm. So how how was the adjustment for her to go to Batesville? Because if you're from Greensburg, it's no big adjustment, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it is still an adjustment uh, for her, but I think she likes it here. Um, you know, the difference between being in a Columbus, Ohio, or a Dayton, Ohio, uh, versus Batesville, Indiana. Obviously, there's marked differences, yeah. um, including the number of Thai restaurants or different things like that. But uh, you know, I, I think she enjoys being around the community here, um, and I think you'll find that when you live in a bigger city, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know any more people or any more social or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think we know you know our neighbors more now than we did. When we lived in uh, Ohio, we are probably more social now as yeah. well with 
peers are our age with, um, you know, play dates with children our own, their own age um, now than we were ever then as well. So, I, you know, I, I think that the adjustment probably initially has been tough. Obviously, we're big fans of Costco and <laughs> different things like that that are now a little more of a drive to get to. Um, but overall, you know, I, I think we're very happy. Yeah. So, um, do you have any hobbies? Yeah. Um, you know, when you're in residency, there's not as much time, uh, for hobbies, but, you know, I enjoy, uh, fishing. Um, my dad's a huge, huge fishing enthusiast. Um, and so, uh, I've tried to, you know, get back into that a little bit. Um, kind of some father-son bonding type stuff, mm-hmm. but he's much more involved uh, than I am, certainly. But those types of things. But at this point in, in my life, my kids take up a lot of, of my time, and rightfully so. You know, I, I love, love, love spending time with my kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my son's getting into the age where he's really likes to build Legos and do really? those types of things. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time, you know, I'll be operating all day and then I'll come home and we'll build Legos all night. So, <laughs> um, or, you know, different doll houses, tea sets yeah. with my, with my girls. Um, and we try to, you know, I think, I don't know what it is, but we calculated up the number of Saturdays that we have until our kids are 18. I think the statistic is, uh, 95% of the time that you spend with your kids are until they're 18. And then it's oh. a very, very small fraction of time over the next, however many years of your life that you have. And so we want those to be meaningful. So on weekends, you know, we go to the aquarium, we go to the zoo, we, you know, we go out on hikes. Yeah. We, we try to, you know, create meaningful memories that, um, you know, that we can share and look back on fondly and those types of things. So, you well, know, we we're do. really fortunate because two of our neighbors are two sons in their family. Well, uh, Larry, uh, he's our oldest son, but he's only 55. And um, he has two daughters, but each of them have three kids. So he's a grandfather of six at 55. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and then Matt has... Uh, uh, Four girls, uh, one's a teacher, one's an RN, one's at IU, and the other one's in uh, high school. So it's uh, it's nice, but all of our all of our children are within a seventy two mile radius. Mm-hmm, that's nice. Yeah, and one our our one grandson, he's in Texas. He's a uh, he was a National Merit Scholar, and he got a full-ride Texas A&M. He's an aeronautical engineer. Mm-hmm. And so I guess Texas is where it, where it, one of the places where it is for the good good future for yeah. them. A lot and, of people are moving to Texas these days. Uh, a lot of people are moving to Texas uh, these days. Especially from California. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, uh, that's like being tortured. <laughs> so... Uh, any suggestions for people to come forward to yourself or to anyone else's with aches or pains that they should have looked at before it gets worse? Yeah, I mean, you know, when it's obviously there's different sets, you know, if you have an injury or 
a broken bone that's going to be handled different the, differently than more chronic conditions like arthritis. Yeah. Um, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, some while while you always want to try to reserve surgery for you know a last resort, mm-hmm. um, you don't want to wait forever. The rehab, and as you've alluded to, your rehab now. Um, as you get older in your eighties is harder than your rehab in your sixties or seventies. Yeah. And it becomes a quality of life. You know, when it's a quality of life decision, when it's affecting you, nobody wants to live in misery. And the, you know, the reality of today with the advancements of med- medicine, it's, it's not unrealistic to think that you may live to be 90, 100, or plus. I hope, well, I hope you're right. Yeah. <laughs> In your case, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're 75, 80, even 85, um, there's, uh, you know, living with a poor quality of life just when you don't have to is yeah. is a, a fool's errand. Yeah. And when I look at patients, regardless of their chronologic age, I put more stock into their biologic age, Mm -hmm. like yourself. You know, there's a lot of 80 some year olds that are going on 50. Um, And there's people that are 60, 70 that are going on 150 or something. (laughs) Well, you know what I found, and I think it's part of my so-called health. Um, I associate with a lot of different people at all ages. Mm -hmm. And I think, that is really important. Uh, not to go into my monthly lunches with Elder High School and going with uh, uh, Nancy's cousins, and you know we do the old people thing, go to lunches, and mm-hmm. more so than we go out for dinner. But I think that really helps if you have a good social life, and. Uh, and stay active and do some kind of exercise. I, I, one of my buddies, he's, he's just sitting at home waiting to die. He won't do anything. I think you're on, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you're undoubtedly right. Again, that's my opinion. I think there's some, and don't quote me on it. I think there's some studies, uh, looking at different, uh, communities in Italy, um, where, you know, they're more, more social, but the longevity I, you know, in those communities itself, or even some of those communities that are now, uh, after they immigrated to the United States, uh, where they're predominantly, you know, one ethnic background or whatever, where they are in contact with each other constantly, mm-hmm. um, have shown that they live longer, they're happier, they are more social. Um, and so I think that has a huge thing to do with it. Now, again, that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I think the more active you stay with quality friends, yeah. Um, you know, I think personally, at the end of the day, everyone's so focused on, well, I want to be happier. I want you to be happier, whatever. And yeah, but you need to find purpose. Yeah. I think that's the biggest challenge. If you have purpose, you can be happy. Like podcasting. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, while I wish you to be happy, I more so wish you to find purpose, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. That leads to ha- true happiness, I oh, think. Oh, I, I agree. And it's, uh, uh, you know, longevity. We, we have friends. I, 
I have so many of my friends have died and or, you know, mentally just either Alzheimer or another form of dementia. Uh, and that's hard to watch, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I, I one of my, well, one thing neat about podcasting, I can tell you this, a really good friend of mine, I hit him on a podcast in September 22. Uh, two months later, he dropped dead. Yeah. So I'm at his celebration of life, and his daughter, Missy, came up and thanked me for doing a podcast because she says, I go to a site and I can listen to my dad. I said, Missy, I'm going to show you something. And she happened to have a laptop at there, I, I guess, to show some fo- recent photos that they didn't get out. So I showed her how to download the the episode, I said, put this on your computer, share it with your siblings, your nieces, nephews, and a hundred years from now, instead of somebody looking at a photo of great-great-grandpa Jack, they can listen to a short biography of his life. Yeah, that's great. And, and I think the next day there were like another 50... <laughs> That we <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I, I did, I donated some portable equipment to the academy and the high school so they can check it out, faculty and students. And they can do a home podcast. Again, put it on a thumb drive, put it someplace, keep it on your computer. It, it won't be published anywhere, but it's for a family thing. And I talked to, uh, uh, I, I, I talked to Kyle at Earth High School, and he was having great success with it. I, I waited to see how they would do before I did the academy, so it's relatively new at the academy, but I set up all the equipment for them, showed them what to do, and uh, uh, Kyle Laker, he told me, he said, and he said, they're, it's staying busy. People are checking it out and using it. So yeah, yeah, that's that's great. that's that's, that's kind of nice, you know, just mm-hmm. to have people do that because my mom died when I was nine years old. I have no idea what her voice sounded like. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but anyway, uh, we're a little over an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> Time flies. I, yeah. So, uh, any words of wisdom before we close out here? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, uh, words of wisdom, uh, pick the right partner in life. You know, my, my wife, Stephanie is, you know, uh, a huge advocate of mine. She's much too good for me. I I don't deserve her. Um, and you know, my family as well. Um, I think that being surrounded by great people, um, is the key to life and makes it worth living. Yeah. Well, I, I, I told other people, I think my wife might be the second assumption for putting up with my craziness <laughs> for 61 years. <laughs> so, so anyway, this is a new one here. I have to find a national, here we go, national anthem. So this, 
Wait a second here. Anyway, are you hearing the national anthem? Are you? It's, it's in my, okay, it's in my headset. Okay, I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Stevens for being on the podcast. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. And I will talk to you on the next podcast. Thanks for having me.